Did you know, early in Metroid Prime's development, the three main villains were a mind-reading South African, a Luddite cult leader, and a neo-Nazi eugenicist? If you've ever looked into Metroid Prime's development, you might have heard it grew out of an earlier project called Action Adventure. To get the inside scoop, we spoke with seven Metroid Prime team members for this video, including the original lead developer John Whitmore, who told us the Action Adventure game was actually called Metaforce. Metaforce starred three hot metahumans who Retro decided to make female, because in the late 90s, the mindset was that if a game was third person, players would rather stare at three hot chicks from behind than three dudes. The neo-Nazi eugenicist wanted to steal their DNA and use it to make a beautiful master race. And this bizarre female-led adventure was the egg that Metroid Prime hatched from, thanks in no small part to Shigeru Miyamoto. In 1999, John and his team at Retro Studios created over a thousand pages of design documents detailing a futuristic society where gene editing created a utopia, but dark forces were using the technology for evil. It was up to the three female protagonists to stop them and save the world, and this trio were called the Metaforce, each with a different playstyle. Bryn was a cybernetic girl who specialized in firearms, Miko was a ninja with psychic abilities, and the third woman was a rifle-wielding assassin. The game would have been around 30 hours in length across three acts, each with their own primary antagonist. The first act centered around a Luddite cult leader in India. This cult created a race of four-armed mutants that carried four guns at a time and served as the cult's foot soldiers. The Luddite cult were actually terrorists, running around sabotaging everything they could, including a Jurassic Park-style zoo. Here's John describing a section of Chapter 1. We re-engineered mammoths, you know, we're, they were basically this, uh, uh, carrying this re-engineered mammoth to the zoo in an armored car or whatever, and he blows up the caravan and lets the mammoth loose, and the mammoth is rampaging through the city, destroying stuff, and, and you've got to deal with the, the bad guys, but then also the mammoth that's running around destroying things too. That was a really cool mission. Chapter 2 focused on the aforementioned neo-Nazi eugenicist who wanted to steal the Metaforce's genes, and as for the villain of the third and final act, John told us, He was a mind-controlling South African. And he was kind of behind the whole thing. So he had been funding the terrorists and, and uh, you know, basically get, yeah, and getting the neo-Nazi to stir up trouble so he could do things elsewhere. It was, a, like I said, a really neat plot. I, I really liked, yeah. Nintendo was part owner of Retro and loved the direction the game was taking, but thought maybe three playable characters was too ambitious, so John's team whittled it down to just one. Bryn, the gun-wielding cybernetic chick. Nintendo also thought third-person cameras were pretty tricky to implement back in those days, so they told Retro to switch the game to first-person. After those changes were implemented was when Miyamoto got involved, who also liked the game's direction, but thought Bryn was too generic, and asked them to come up with a cooler main character. So Retro swapped her out with an alien with sonic abilities that let her see enemies through walls, and wrote another thousand pages of design documents. The protagonist alien was discovered by the U.S. government in a UFO crash, then turned into a federal agent to help them fight off an invasion by another race of aliens, who were evil. Eventually, Miyamoto said something along the lines of, You know what? These enemy aliens would make great space pirates. How would y'all like to turn this into a Metroid game? John's team thought that sounded great, so they played through all the Metroid games over and over, watched hours of speedruns, read every forum post they could find, and wrote another thousand pages of design documents. By then, it had become a running joke at Retro that once a game hit a thousand pages, it was definitely gonna get cancelled. 
At this point, Retro had no idea what the GameCube was going to look like or what kind of hardware was under the hood. They were initially told it would be a lot more powerful, and Nintendo showed them some GameCube prototypes, one of which looked like a transparent PlayStation 2. They also said it would essentially have a PS2 DualShock controller, so Retro planned for Metroid Prime to have traditional FPS controls where the right stick handles movement and the left stick adjusts the view. Retro thought it all sounded awesome, but one day Nintendo showed up with the finalized hardware, a purple lunchbox, and a controller that John told us looked like it could only be used for Miyamoto games. Look, the GameCube, it's not even a cube, so that's a problem for me, just with my OCD. Like, if you're gonna call something a cube, make it a cube, at least. But I, I don't like the my PlaySchool version, my first video game PlaySchool console. Uh, look that it had, wasn't a big fan. Here's James H. Dargy, who also worked on Metaforce and stayed on board till Metroid Prime shipped. Already exhausted from all his team's work that had thus far gotten thrown in the trash, the weaker and kiddier GameCube was the last straw for John. He pretty much immediately quit and found a new job elsewhere. And when Metroid Prime launched a year later, they left him out of the credits. That's the short version of the story, but there were a few more twists and turns, like switching back to third person, then back again to first person. But now you know how the gene-stealing third-person adventure with three female leads gradually evolved into a first-person game starring a single heroine fighting against aliens. So let's check out some of the game's other history. Before coming to Retro, James H. Dargy also worked on ships featured in The Matrix and Final Fantasy Spirits Within, so Nintendo told him for Samus's ship he could quote, do anything. He went through a number of iterations, but what he ended up with was the ship we know today, a vessel with lots of sci-fi inspirations, but mostly the ship from Super Metroid and Star Wars' Millennium Falcon. He showed us his model of Samus's ship, and told us as an homage to the Millennium Falcon, he added these guns to the bottom, which you never actually see in-game, but they are there. Even if you don't get to see the guns firing, you can still see the panels that conceal them. Samus's ship in Metroid Prime isn't the same ship from the mainline series. It was designed and modeled entirely by James. Fans usually refer to all Samus's ships collectively as the gunship, even though none of them actually have names. But James told us he named the ship in Metroid Prime the Thrush Eterna, inspired by a fast-flying bird called a thrush. According to James, Samus's ship never really had a name. I've designed a few different spaceships, and I've written lore and backstory for different games, and even for film. You know, I'm a big fan of sci-fi in general, so I think cool ships should have cool names. And that's the name I came up with. It was kind of bird-like, and I wanted it to be cool, like Eternal. Maybe it existed long before Samus ever got it. The name Thrush Eterna implies backstory. He went on to say that files at the top-level directory were called Thrush Eterna, but the ship's name never actually appears in the game's script. Maybe it was more mysterious to leave it. Um, the ship with no name, you know. Maybe. <laughs> But before we cover even more exclusive Metroid facts not found anywhere else, a word from this episode's sponsor, Bai. If you've ever used American sites to buy things from Japan, you've probably noticed how much sellers jack up the price. It can be a lot. This is where Bai comes in. Bai is a service that places orders or bids on your behalf on Japanese shopping and auction sites, then ships the items straight to you without any absurd price hikes. This includes sites like Rakuten, Amazon Japan, and Yahoo Japan Auction. So if you've been wanting to get a hold of 
a Japanese game or piece of merch but don't want to pay insane rates, this service will let you get your hands on the stuff for a more affordable price. Buy-E is easy to use and offers support in several languages, which of course includes English. They also ship worldwide, including to North America, Europe, and Oceania. Buy-E has over half a dozen international shipping methods, multiple payment methods, and four different insurance plans to match your needs. Buy-E is also giving Did You Know Gaming viewers a 2,000 yen, which is about 18 US dollars, first-time purchase coupon for signing up through the link below. So if you want to try out this great service and get 2,000 yen off your first order, check out Buy-E using our link below. And now, back to Metroid. We also spoke with Metroid Prime's audio lead, Clark Wen, who filled us in on the audio history and sound secrets. Yeah, there's one Easter egg um, I think the fans might be curious to know about, because I never told anyone. And you have to be a bit of a film fan to understand it. The Easter egg he's talking about can be found in the Save Room fanfare. There's a tone you'll hear right after saving or when you load your save file. Clark told us this audio easter egg comes from the 1971 film Walkabout, which he was obsessed with and watched over and over during Prime's development. To quickly summarize without giving away any spoilers, the movie's about a father who drives his two children into the Australian wilderness, then has a mental breakdown and sets the car on fire, then shoots himself. So his two kids are left with no choice but to wander the outback trying to find their way to civilization. The movie has heavy themes of survival and isolation, along with some otherworldly soundscapes, all of which Clark wanted to emulate in Metroid Prime. The entire game has an audio vibe inspired by the film, but the save room fanfare is a direct reference to the scene in Walkabout where the kids survive their first nightfall, drenched in one of the film's soundscapes. Here it is. That's the Easter egg in Prime's save room fanfare. Did you catch it? Here's them side by side for comparison. It's a pretty pessimistic film, but Clark shared some more light-hearted sound stories as well. Like the sounds puddle spores make are actually Metroid Prime's developers burping and belching. He told us, The sounds of the puddle spore creatures that appear in the Magmoor Caverns area were made using the thickest, wettest burps I could wrangle from my fellow retro employees. I sent a company-wide email asking for volunteers who could belch on cue. Afterwards, to my surprise, I literally had a line of people waiting outside the VO booth. That was a fun day of recording. He ended up using four of those belches in the final game, after using some distortions, of course. According to Clark, Metroid Prime's space pirates actually speak a real human language. Well, Kind of. He told us, I wanted the pirates to sound kind of semi-intelligent. Instead of using animal sounds and roars, I wanted them to have some kind of language. So I took Russian words and kind of flipped around the syllables and assigned them to different actions. So for example, when they attack the player, that was using the Russian word for attack, then just moving some of the syllables around. I got someone in the studio to record them, then we put them in the game. But it sounded like we had Russian Mafia yelling something in Slavic. Clark wasn't satisfied with the Russian Mafia 
Nokia vibe, so he scrapped the audio and replaced it with pitbull noises. But in playtesting, the staff thought it sounded cartoony and dumb, so he threw that out as well. Clark's third attempt is what made it into the final game. One of Retro's programmers was Nigerian and spoke a language called Yoruba, so just like earlier with Russian, Clark had him take the Yoruba words like attack and mixed up the syllables, recorded his voice, and distorted it. And that's the language the space pirates speak in the final game. Clark also wanted to use his own voice for the Tangleweeds. He was running short on time, so rather than trying to find a proper sound effect, he just made the sound with his own mouth. He told us, Those sounds are actually my voice pitch shifted up an octave, and the only time I used my voice anywhere in Prime. After some head-scratching remarks from Nintendo over the years, there's been confusion among fans whether or not the Prime series is part of mainline canon, or if it's part of its own separate canon. According to series producer Yoshio Sakamoto, he thought about making Prime separate, what he calls a Gaiden, but ultimately decided it was best to insert it into the mainline canon between Metroid 1 and 2. When we talked to John Whitmore, he said his team actually did think they were making a Gaiden. He told us, We were considering it as just kind of a reboot of Metroid, without much historical reference to the past games. Or at least I think it was basically, Nintendo will kind of figure this out for us after the fact. We wanted to use enemies from the previous games, so there was some sense that this was building on what happened in previous games. But like I said, we were looking at it as more of a reboot, rather than as something connected to a history of the franchise. So even though Metroid Prime was developed as a reboot, or Gaiden, Nintendo ultimately decided to insert it into the the timeline after Metroid 1. The titular Metroids were one of the returning enemies Retro wanted to appear in the game, so really it was the only place Nintendo could insert Prime into the timeline, since Samus drove Metroids to extinction in Metroid 2. Well, except the baby, of course. John also told us Metroid Fusion wasn't originally part of Nintendo's master plan. He said it was common knowledge that Miyamoto was willing to take the risk with Retro, who'd never even completed a single game before, making a new Metroid because it wasn't a franchise franchise Miyamoto created himself. And to quote John directly, Miyamoto didn't care if we killed it. Previous Metroid games sold pretty poorly, especially in Japan, but Prime took the world by storm when it was revealed at Space World 2000. John says Nintendo was really surprised when those early trailers generated massive hype, especially in the West, and it was the hype for Prime that directly led Nintendo starting development on Fusion, a companion game for Game Boy Advance that launched the exact same day as Metroid Prime. John told us, I don't think Nintendo had any idea how big Metroid was gonna be. Like I said, it wasn't Miyamoto's favorite game, and it was kinda dormant among Nintendo franchises for a while. It wasn't until the news came out that they were doing Metroid Prime and people really started talking about it that they said, actually, this is a franchise we overlooked, and realized how much legs it had here in the West. And that's when they decided to do the GBA Metroid game as well. But when we were first working on Metroid Prime, they had no plans for doing anything like that. It was the buzz that was continually being generated about Metroid that got them to inject something else into the franchise. But even if Miyamoto was willing to risk Metroid's death at the hands of an unproven studio, he still brought his A-game and was instrumental in the game's success. Retro spent the first three months developing Metroid Prime as a third-person adventure, but Miyamoto upended the tea table and made them change it to first-person. Some areas had to be changed or thrown out entirely, like this vertical platforming section that simply wouldn't work in first-person. 
Even Sakamoto and Retro's president Jeff Spangenberg wanted 3D Metroid to be in third person, and the battle over perspectives was one of the main reasons John Whitmore resigned as head of the project. And John says although Miyamoto won the war, the guys at Retro still snuck in as many chances to switch to third person as they could to show off the Samus model they designed, like in save rooms and cutscenes. But looking back on it all now, two decades later, John admits Miyamoto was absolutely right to make the game in first person. Very late in development, Miyamoto also remapped the game's buttons himself, which made controlling Samus a lot more intuitive, and as a result, made the game a whole lot better. James told us, Miyamoto changed the idea of how it should function, like this button being lock on and this button turning the camera and how it works. We had it just a little different, but it never quite felt natural. Like you got used to it and it was like, oh yeah, like once you understand it, you can it's functional, but you know, he had suggested a different approach and it was much more intuitive. And that was only after a, like 15 minutes of playing with it. You know, he knows he's good at his job. I guess he's a good, uh, He's one of those real geniuses. We also got in touch with Jim Warnell, the Nintendo of America artist who made Metroid Prime's logo. He told us the logo went through 53 iterations, which based on all the man hours that went into it, made it the most expensive logo Nintendo ever produced. Different colors, different fonts, different designs, and after 53 different versions, this is what he ended up with. Everyone loved it, so Jim was later tasked with making the logos for Metroid Fusion, Prime 2, and Metroid Prime Hunters. Speaking of which, all these games had completely different box art in Japan, but still used Jim's logo designs. He didn't do the logos for Prime 3 or Zero Mission though, which is why their designs are noticeably different. They're basically just stylized text. Speaking of Metroid Prime 3, did you know it was almost an open world game where Samus was an actual bounty hunter? As in, she would have gone on side quests hunting down baddies and hauling them in for a reward. We spoke with Brian Walker, the senior producer of Prime 2 and 3, and also the guy who convinced Nintendo to let them remaster the entire trilogy and release it for the price of only one Wii game. He left Retro Studios a few years ago after finishing the trilogy, and from his home in the countryside of Austin, Texas, he told us one big development story. After wrapping up development on Prime 2, Brian and his team were feeling a little burnt out on the franchise, so they looked through Nintendo's collection of IP to consider what they wanted to work on next. They created design documents for potential Wii games and pitched them to Nintendo. One of them was a revival of Donkey Kong Country, and another was a Zelda spin-off where you played as the last surviving Sheikah after your race was wiped out in a genocidal ethnic cleansing. Retro's pitches were forwarded to Nintendo President Satoru Iwata, who came back and said before Retro branched out into new IP, he wanted them to make the Prime series a proper trilogy. The Wii hadn't released yet, and Iwata wanted a new Metroid Prime that could show off the capabilities of their new home console and the potential of its revolutionary new controller. So Retro agreed. They'd go bananas with Donkey Kong later, but first, they'd make Metroid Prime 3. So they got to work brainstorming what Samus's jump into the next console generation was gonna look like, and what they came up with was open-world bounty hunting. Brian knows what kinds of ideas might conjure up in the imaginations of modern gamers, and he's seen some over-exuberant fans spreading wild exaggerations of Retro's concept since he briefly mentioned it on the excellent Kiwi Talks podcast. But to get the full and accurate story out to the fanbase, Brian asked us to help set the record straight with this video. He told 
told us, we were not proposing in any way, shape, or form, even in our wildest dreams, that we would have like Metroid Prime Skyrim. We were not talking about 200-hour side quests or anything like that. More precisely, it was the ability for the player to operate out of a hub area, and to go on to different missions that didn't necessarily lend themselves directly to the normal path progression that a Metroid Prime game was known for, as far as traversal, retroversal, and so forth. Samus had the ability to step outside of that and do more things on the side. Brian and a lot of the other guys at Retro Studios had always imagined Samus as someone like Boba Fett, but with a sense of honor. For the non-Star Wars fans out there, Boba Fett's an intergalactic bounty hunter with a decades-long career hunting down heads for cash, probably most famous for capturing Han Solo at the behest of Jabba the Hutt. As such, most of the optional side quests in Metroid Prime 3 would have consisted of bounty hunting missions, with Samus leaving the game's main campaign to fly around the galaxy, chasing down baddies of various types. Retro didn't plan on implementing an in-game currency. Instead, Samus's reward would have been gaining additional capabilities. To quote Brian directly, I recall the ability for the player to, for lack of a better term, applying the JRPG term here, to level up by going off to do some side quests instead of following the scripted storyline, so to speak. So that was a key consideration, and that's a well-established convention in a variety of games. And it wasn't just Samus. Her ship would have grown stronger as well. In fact, making the ship more central to gameplay was one of Retro's primary goals for wrapping up the trilogy. The game's director, Mark Pacini, built a 10-inch origami replica of Samus's ship and brought it into their production meetings, using it as something of a mascot for the game's production. When we asked whatever happened to that origami ship, Brian said he thinks Mark Pacini probably still has it tucked away somewhere. He should auction that off on eBay after all the exposure it's getting here. We should probably, we could probably raise some good, uh, some good funds for a charity with it. Hey, no pressure, Mark. Cough it up. Hopefully that'll happen someday and we'll all get a chance to see it. While discussing how Samus's ship would have worked in-game, Brian was quick to explain that Retro never planned to let players actively fly the ship. He told us, The thing we should clarify is that we're not talking about flying the ship first person like Wing Commander. That wouldn't really have fit in with the Metroid Prime formula. It was just something we felt like if you couldn't do it right, if you couldn't make something state-of-the-art, don't try to do it halfway. So a watered-down Wing Commander approach just wasn't gonna fly, no pun intended. Rather than the player flying the ship directly, it would have served as an extension of Samus's abilities in the overworld. Retro prototyped several abilities, like calling in the ship to serve as a distraction, drawing enemy fire away from Samus so she'd have an easier time clearing them out. But only two of these abilities made it into the final game ship missiles that would let you call in a bombing run, and the grapple beam for moving large objects, neither of which were used all too frequently. Overall, the ship was just meant to play a larger role and be a more applicable tool in Samus' repertoire as she explored the game world. Brian's immensely proud of how the game turned out, but laments the limited ship functionality in the game's final build, feeling they ended up short of their original goals. So why didn't open-world bounty hunting become a reality? Retro took their design docs and pitched the concept to Nintendo in a high-level presentation. They wanted to expand on the Boba Fett aspects of Samus's character, but it turned out Nintendo had a completely different understanding of who and what Samus really is. As Brian remembers it, Kiyo, who was one of the translators, boiled it down very well in the assumption that our Japanese partners had of Samus, that she was not doing it for the money, 
she was being very altruistic, and I think he rolled out the term motherly. She was caring for people. What she was doing was literally out of the goodness of her heart, because she deeply cared about humanity, which was as far away from Boba Fett as you can get. I never would have equated Samus with the definition of an altruistic motherly influence, given that she had the title of Bounty Hunter. We were just looking at Keo as he was describing this like, are we even on the same planet? Retro was genuinely confused why Nintendo was so resistant to the bounty hunting mission structure they were proposing, until after several days of discussion they realized Nintendo didn't actually know what a bounty hunter really was. They'd been calling Samus a bounty hunter since 1986, but apparently they thought of her more as a space adventurer with a heart of gold. A space adventurer that definitely didn't hunt bounties. And ultimately, that contradiction between Retro and Nintendo's understanding of Samus's character was why the open world concept got killed off. But there were also some practical concerns. Retro Studios was a lean, mean Metroid Prime developing team with only 45 devs. As Brian describes it, they were hardwired and staffed to make that finely crafted and balanced experience of the first two Metroid Primes. But to do something much different outside of that would have been a pretty significant staffing and development push. It was outside of the very tightly scripted, very carefully crafted experience of discovery and isolation that really are the fundamentals of the Metroid experience, not only in Prime, but the 2D games as well. Some of us had worked on other types of games that had these kind of sandbox considerations, and we were pointing out the amount of work to do something even close to competent in that area was significant. We trusted Nintendo at the end of the day. We trusted their instincts and their judgment. They're the best in the business for a reason. They have a long track record of making the right call. In the end, they decided to stay the course and develop Prime 3 with a similar formula to the first two games, although Brian says he would have loved to see what fans thought of the more open-world format. To be clear, that game isn't in a vault somewhere, and outside of the ship's functions, Retro's ideas only existed as documents pitched to Nintendo, and it was one of many rejected pitches Brian's been involved with in his 30-year career. But who knows? With Retro Studios back in the saddle with Metroid Prime 4, maybe someday we'll get to see that vision become a reality. Did you know? There's a Japan-only Metroid game full of exclusive lore and had several of its story elements reused in Metroid Fusion, Zero Mission, Super Metroid, and even Metroid Prime 2? Well, kind of. Released a few months after the original Famicom Disk System game, Metroid Zebus Invasion Order was an interactive literary adaptation licensed by Nintendo and published by Futashaba in December 1986. It's sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure novel on steroids, where the reader, or more accurately, the player, is constantly making choices and rolling dice, then flipping to specific pages to explore branching paths, a bit like Dungeons & Dragons. As such, this gamebook borrows many elements from tabletop RPGs, like having to use pencil and paper to keep track of Samus's health, missile count, and current location in Zebus's labyrinthian underworld. The first three quarters of the story follows the original Metroid pretty faithfully, but the final act strikes out and forges its own path, and interestingly, seems to foreshadow events that didn't happen in the mainline series until decades later. These days, buying the book and getting it translated into English would set you back about $2,000, but we're gonna save you the trouble, and at the end of this video, we'll even show you how to play it without spending a penny. 
Just like the original game, Space Pirates have obtained a capsule of Metroid embryos and taken it to Zebus for experimentation, with the goal of creating a dangerous bioweapon. Samus is tasked with infiltrating Zebus, defeating the Space Pirates, and retrieving the capsule so the Federation can study it. The gameplay has Samus exploring room by room, fighting enemies, collecting new weapons and abilities, and backtracking to previous rooms so she can use those new abilities to access secret rooms and more upgrades. Zebus is made up of three areas connected by elevators, Brinstar, Norfair, and Torian, totaling 97 rooms, each represented by one page, and almost every room containing one enemy. To kill enemies, the player rolls a six-sided die to determine if they kill an enemy or if it damages Samus. If it doesn't die on the first roll, the player keeps rolling until either it or Samus are dead. Using missiles, or more powerful beam upgrades acquired throughout your adventure, gives you better dice rolling odds in combat, and eventually, the various suit will double Samus's defenses, cutting damage in half. Later in your playthrough, you'll want to backtrack to the beginning to hunt for upgrades, and with a slew of new abilities, Samus makes quick work of enemy types that might have killed her just a few hours earlier, and she can use newly acquired upgrades like bombs to gain access to new areas. Zebus Invasion Order is incredibly difficult, but when Samus dies, she's at least sent back to the beginning of the area she died in with all of her upgrades still intact. The gamebook is surprisingly faithful to the video game, so much so that some Metroid speedrunning strats can be used with the book. Instead of backtracking room by room all the way across the map, sometimes it's easier just to die on purpose and get sent back to the start of an area, which is known as a death warp in speedrunning. Keeping track of Samus's health, missiles, and the map can grow tiresome, but the Metroid formula's conversion into a gamebook is really quite genius. Some decisions stand out as particularly creative adaptations of the video game's core mechanics. For example, sometimes you'll come across a room with a secret entrance to a hidden room. To access it, you'll need to flip to the page in the book that represents the hidden room, but the page itself is also hidden. You're told the page number, but with one digit missing, so you'll have to hunt through the book to find it. And you're usually well compensated when you do, with the secret rooms having some of the best items, like missile expansions, energy tanks, and the screw attack. Up to this point, Zebus Invasion Order mirrors the Famicom Disk System title, but with a few notable differences. In the game, Zebus is a planet, but the gamebook refers to Zebus as an asteroid. A little extra Extra lore was added as well, like how Mother Brain's been experimenting on Zebus's indigenous creatures and grafting cybernetic enhancements onto them. The book also expands on Ridley's abilities, giving him psychic abilities that accentuate the pain caused by his fire attacks. Creed and Ridley are also holding keystones that are required to unlock the path to Torian, which explains why Samus can't head straight to Mother Brain right from the start. After killing Mother Brain and retrieving the Metroid capsule, Samus climbs out in an escape shaft and flies away in her spaceship. At this point, the game changes completely. You're no longer required to keep track of Samus's stats or location, and gameplay shifts into a more traditional choose-your-own-adventure format. The gamebook's story goes down its own path for the final act, adding some extra twists and turns, some of which made their way into future mainline installments. As Samus flees in her ship, she realizes one of the capsule's embryos broke out and developed into a gigantic, mutated Metroid. This new story element was presumably inspired by the end of the 1979 film Alien, where Ripley finds the Xenomorph stowed away on her escape pod. Perhaps more interestingly, this was the first first time Metroid fans ever got to see a mutated Metroid, and the same could be said for Samus's spaceship. Neither were in the original game, and both made their video game debut five years later in Metroid 2 Return of Samus. With the mutant Metroid bearing down on her, the player has two choices, send out a distress signal from the cockpit, or flee in an escape pod. Either way, she's eventually forced to dock in a giant ship belonging to the Space Pirates, in a situation very similar to the extra chapter added to Metroid Zero Mission. However, one major difference is that the gamebook's author depicted the Space Pirates as humans, since they weren't revealed as aliens until eight years later in Super Metroid. The Space Pirates capture Samus and their boss pulls off her helmet, revealing that, gasp, 
Samus is a woman. The pirates are all shocked it was actually a woman who destroyed their base on Zebus, and the pirate boss is even, quote, horrified by the revelation. What happens next branches off into eight different endings. Six of those endings result in Samus getting killed by either the Metroid or at the hands of the space pirates. Of the two endings where Samus survives, the bad ending occurs if you try to escape without risking your life to retrieve the capsule and complete your mission. If you make that mistake, you're treated to a conclusion very similar to the end of Metroid Fusion. Samus flees to the docking bay but gets intercepted by the mutant Metroid at the last second, and after she kills it in the equivalent of a final boss battle, she escapes in a small craft and fires a missile that destroys the pirate ship. But as Samus flies into the distance, the mutant Metroid can be seen latched onto her ship, implying she might die off-screen soon after. In the good ending, Samus faces off against the pirate boss in a sword fight, culminating in the boss getting killed by Samus or defeated and left to get killed by the mutant. Either way, Samus takes the capsule and escapes on the small craft fires a missile destroying the pirate ship, and flies off with the Metroid capsule. Mission complete. After it's all said and done, the player's treated to an epilogue where a meteorite lands on Earth, and although nothing's found at the impact crater, several human corpses are found nearby with the life drained from their bodies. It's implied that unbeknownst to the locals, the crashed object was actually the mutant Metroid who developed a hateful obsession for Samus and came to Earth to hunt her down. A dark and foreboding cliffhanger for a sequel that never got made. Although, it's worth noting, the idea of a heavily mutated Metroid viewing Samus as its arch-nemesis and coming after her again and again later found its way into Metroid Prime 2 Echoes. Zebus Invasion Order features quite a few original plotlines that have influenced future games, but it's unclear if the developers took direct inspiration from the game book or if all these similarities are just a coincidence. Zebus Invasion Order borrows story beats from the Alien movies, and the same can be said for the video games, so perhaps the parallels are simply the result of a shared inspiration. Regardless, it's interesting to see similar events play out in the book years or even decades before they happen in the games. Copies of Zebus Invasion Order have become increasingly rare and expensive over the past 35 years, to the point where it's hard to find a listing for one at any price. But one fan who was able to get his hands on a copy was Devin Monins, aided in no small part by the Game Preservation Society in Japan. Over the course of several years, Devin translated Zebus Invasion Order and converted it into a playable text adventure. It's now freely available on Metroid Database, so if you want to give it a try, we'll leave a link in this video's description. Devin even streamlined it so the game keeps track of Samus's health, missiles, and the map all on its own, so you don't have to resort to pencil and paper unless you're feeling like a purist. This is actually how we played the game, though the quality of life features were disabled to best replicate the authentic experience of playing the gamebook. Metroid Dread has a 16-year-long history, and several other YouTubers have delved into the topic already, explaining some of the game's origins. But we weren't satisfied with the info that's available. That's why for this video, we hunted down seasoned Metroid developers for exclusive interviews, and translated magazines into English for the first time to get the complete story of Dread's development. So without further delay, let's jump into it. Metroid Dread's story begins at E3 2005. Reggie revealed the new Game Boy Micro. Iwata revealed not only the Wii, but also a brand new concept called the Virtual Console. And then the show went horribly off script when Miyamoto revealed Nintendogs, then his dog Mario immediately started humping his co-host dog. Yeah, that wasn't supposed to happen. But there was another thing that was supposed to happen, but didn't. Reggie showed off a slew of upcoming DS games, like New Super Mario Bros., Animal Crossing, and Castlevania. But the day before their presentation, Nintendo showed a few game journalists an off-the-record peek at an internal product sheet listing all these games, plus one more, Metroid Dread. 
Somewhere in that 24-hour window, Nintendo decided to cut Dread from their presentation. The staff of Game Informer magazine had already seen the product sheet, so in their next issue they included Metroid Dread on a list of DS games scheduled for release in 2006. Nintendo fans were thoroughly confused, as they'd never even heard of Metroid Dread and couldn't find information about it anywhere. Yet here it was in Game Informer, no explanation given. So of course, fans speculated, and rumors spread on internet message boards. Eventually, one of those fans asked IGN editor Craig Harris about Dread, as he was one of the few people who saw the E3 spreadsheet. Harris responded publicly that Metroid Dread was in fact real, and that it would probably show up next year. But what exactly did Craig and the other journalist elites see on that spreadsheet? A few years later, Craig was the host of IGN's Nintendo Voice Chat podcast, where he said this, well, they still have Metroid Dread, at least a script for it, and I, I bring it up every single time, and they do have the story. I mean, I saw the synopsis of the of wow, the game, crazy. and I know it exists, and they pulled it plug at the last minute. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I know that exists, and they can always bring it back. A short version of this quote made its way onto Metroid wikis and YouTube videos in the decade since, and before Dread's official announcement in 2021, it was arguably the most prominent piece of evidence touted by fans. Many of them believe Dread had a full script and was decently far into development, but that doesn't appear to be the case. Last year, we contacted Greg to ask about his podcast and what exactly he saw at E3 2005. We'll throw up his full, unedited explanation on screen if you want to pause and read it. But the short version is that the product sheet only had a one-paragraph description, and it basically just said something like, Samus is back in the next game in the Metroid series. In other words, the journalists were never shown any script, and it doesn't seem a script ever existed. In 2015, gaming historian and longtime Did You Know Gaming collaborator Liam Robertson conducted a series of interviews with Nintendo developers. Speaking anonymously, one developer who worked on Nintendo's Japanese teams explained that work on Dread began in 2005. They went on to state that it only existed as design documents and ideas among certain staff members, including Sakamoto, but they never even got as far as pre-production. This lines up with what Sakamoto would eventually reveal in a 2021 roundtable interview, where he said, 15 years ago when I originally conceived of the game, the story itself wasn't clearly set. It's fairly recent we finalized the detailed story, so you can imagine what I had envisioned 15 years ago is not the same as what has been achieved now. It consisted of Samus facing a dreadful opponent, a dreadful experience. At that time, I hadn't developed in detail the storyline within the overall chronology and background of the series. Over the course of several more interviews, he went on to say that the DS hardware just wasn't powerful enough to bring the game to life. But the fact Metroid Dread was little more than an abandoned idea was never communicated to the fans back in 2005, so all they could do was wait for the next E3, then the next one. But both events came and went without a peep. Then in late 2007, Metroid Prime 3 hit store shelves, and within 24 hours, fans discovered a panel near the end of the game that said, Metroid Project Dread is nearing the final stages of completion, which sent half the fanbase into a frenzy, thinking it was a hint that Dread was finally within reach. But the other half of the fanbase drew the opposite conclusion, that Dread had been cancelled, because the panel right next to it said the experiment was unsuccessful, and Project Dread had failed. Prime 3's senior producer Brian Walker and director Mark Piccini both denied the scans were meant as a clue, explaining they were actually, quote, a fictional element of something else in the game that by a large coincidence could be read that we were giving a hint about Metroid Dread, which was not the case. It's a complete and utter coincidence. During our research for this video, we had a one-hour Zoom call with Brian Walker. By now, he's been gone from Retro Studios for almost a decade, so he's in a much better position to open up about old secrets. And he was, actually. 
He told us about cancelled prototypes, cut content in the Prime Trilogy, and lots more behind-the-scenes secrets which we'll share in some upcoming videos. But as far as the Dread reference, he said he knew who added it into the game, but he swore it really was just a weird coincidence. In fact, Nintendo and Miyamoto in particular had pretty strict rules preventing them from hiding Easter eggs. And besides, Retro was completely out of the loop on what Nintendo was doing with the main series, so they couldn't have hinted at Dread's development even if they'd wanted to. In reality, it was actually one year later in 2008 that Sakamoto restarted development. Although this time it wasn't Dread, but an entirely different 2D Metroid. In 2015, several of Liam Robertson's sources inside Nintendo revealed the game was extensively prototyped in a 2D sprite art style, with one developer saying, quote, it literally looked like a port of fusion on DS. At this point, it wasn't being called Dread anymore, and its working title was simply Metroid. Staff from first-party development houses were invited to see an early version of Metroid at a pre-E3 event in 2009, but the game dropped off the radar soon after. If you're skeptical about information coming from anonymous sources, as you probably should be, it's worth noting that bits and pieces were later confirmed by Sakamoto himself six years later. In fact, since Metroid 2008 was completely different and went by a different codename, you could argue it wasn't Metroid Dread at all. Rather, it was just another failed attempt at restarting 2D Metroid. Maybe we're slicing the onion a little too thinly, but what Sakamoto did make clear was that because of the franchise's middling sales history, Nintendo simply wasn't willing to give him a AAA development team. He continued to think about it even into the 3DS era, but still wasn't able to put together the dream team the project required. Unbeknownst to Sakamoto, the team he needed was currently being formed halfway across the world. A small studio in Spain called Mercury Steam had only made three games, none of which were of particular note, like American McGee Presents Scrapland. But that all changed when Konami gave them the opportunity of a lifetime with the chance to reboot the Castlevania franchise in 3D. With a little help from Hideo Kojima, their first entry in 2010 called Lords of Shadow took on a more God of War-like style and went on to become the best-selling Castlevania game of all time. Following its success, Konami contracted Mercury Steam to produce two more Castlevanias, the direct sequel Lords of Shadow 2 and the much more Metroidvania-style Mirror of Fate for Nintendo 3DS. Unfortunately, neither game managed to achieve the sales success of their predecessor, and Konami was already pivoting away from games and towards Pachinko, so they let the franchise die and another Castlevania game was never produced. Well, unless you count the mobile games and Pachinko machines. So in an effort to jump from one series to another, Mercury Steam started prototyping a Metroid game to pitch to Nintendo. According to Spanish developers who interviewed for the project, as well as Liam Robertson sources, Mercury Steam wanted to make a first-person Metroid game for Wii taking place in a post-apocalyptic setting. Similar to Metroid Prime Hunters, the player could also choose from either Samus or six other bounty hunters to complete the game's main campaign. Supplementing the Wii U title, a 3DS companion game was also planned. Nintendo rejected Mercury Steam's pitch, but word eventually made its way to Sakamoto that the Castlevania team was pushing hard to get into Metroid. So he sat down with his 3DS and played Mirror of Fate, and was super impressed. So Sakamoto flew to Spain to meet the developers face-to-face. -face. Mercury Steam said, Okay, we guess Nintendo didn't like our 3D pitch, so how about a modern 2D remake of Metroid Fusion? Sakamoto told them he was more interested in a Metroid 2 remake. The Game Boy original was the only mainline game he wasn't personally involved with, and it tells an essential part of the series' lore. 
Sakamoto also thought, with the recent success of Metroidvanias in the indie scene, that now was a good time to ask Nintendo to let him make one of his own. Talking to Comics Gaming Magazine, he said, There's a thirst for that genre. People are excited about this genre, and so from a marketing standpoint, understanding that this market exists, it's been helpful to have all of these people clamoring for them. It gave me the momentum to say, hey, look at this thing I've been talking about. Well, I think this is the right time. Two years later, Samus Returns launched on 3DS to critical acclaim, and even won Best Handheld at the 2017 Game Awards. But even more importantly, Sakamoto loved it. So before it was finished, he'd already decided Mercury Steam was the team he'd been looking for to resurrect Metroid Dread. If you finish Samus Returns with 100% item completion, you get to see a mysterious Chozo memory with dreadful music playing over it. Sakamoto told Spanish outlet Hobby Consolas it was certainly hinting at something, but wouldn't say what. In hindsight, it's clear this was Ravenbeak having just killed the six Chozo Overseers, and the memory itself was a sign that Metroid Dread was already in the works. Sixteen years after it all started, Nintendo finally revealed Metroid Dread at E3 2021. And even more than Samus Returns, Dread borrowed substantial elements from Mercury Steam's Castlevania games. Traditionally, both the Castlevania and Metroid series used a static side-scrolling camera, but Mirror of Fate introduced a cinematic camera most often used in boss fights. This exact same camera system was incorporated into Metroid Dread, and according to Sakamoto, adding it to Metroid was Mercury Steam's idea as was Samus's melee counter, which is essentially a mix of the block-and-grab maneuvers used by Castlevania's Belmonts. Dread also uses a good deal of quick-time events in its boss fights, and, for the first time in the series, introduces map markers to help the player return to hidden areas after they've acquired the necessary upgrades. Two more mechanics taken from Mirror of Fate. But Sakamoto and Mercury Steam weren't content to just inject Dread with new-school Castlevania. They also wanted to bring back old-school Metroid. While Super Metroid was famous for its sequence breaking, that is, giving the player the chance to obtain key items out of order, the previous mainline game in the series, Metroid Fusion, didn't include a single sequence break. According to Dread's director, Jose Luis Marquez, they intentionally left in tons of opportunities to sequence break, and are expecting hardcore fans to find some breaks they didn't even know were possible. One of these intentional breaks actually has a hidden cutscene. With a well-timed slide jump, players can get the bombs early, then use them to launch directly into Kraid's belly for an insta-kill. Or, if you sequence break to get the flash shift early, you can jump between Kraid's teeth and unload a barrage of missiles. As far as sequence breaks the developers didn't plan, a good example is getting the Phantom Cloak before the charge beam, which is usually the very first upgrade. Using a glitch maneuver called the Pseudo-Plasma Beam, it's possible to blow up this ceiling and make your way to the boss Corpius earlier than intended. When Samus kills Corpius in the cutscene that follows, she uses her Charge Beam, despite the fact she hasn't obtained it yet. In an interview with Javi Consolas about Samus Returns, but probably even more applicable to Metroid Dread, Marquez said, Let's just say there are parts where we allowed sequence breaking, and others where, for whatever reason, we weren't interested in allowing it. But people broke it anyway. We've seen things we never would have been able to imagine possible. In reality, it's hard to stop sequence breaking if the player really wants to do it. There are always so many talented people with so much time with so many skills that can skip. To learn more about these skips Mercury's team never imagined, we talked to some of those talented people Marquez was talking about, like Bane, one of the fastest Dread fans on the planet. Players have to reach Samus's ship in under four hours to get the best ending. 
but Bane held the world record with a time of just 1 hour and 10 minutes. He told us about camera lock, a glitch where reloading the melee tutorial several times locks the camera into this exact position, and at the same time all the destructible blocks, doors, gates, and water essentially disappear from the rest of Arteria. From there, you have to run all the way across the map blind, using nothing but sound to reach this room where you can obtain the screw attack early, which lets you skip ever having to come back to Frozen Arteria, including the boss fight against Experiment Z57. It's a pretty tricky sequence break, but speedrunners like Bane could pull it off in under a minute. A few other tricks probably weren't intended either, like the water bomb glitch that lets you reach underwater ledges before the game plans you to. With Metroid Dread just a few months old and speedrunners already beating it in 70 minutes, the big question is will anyone ever beat it in under an hour? Bane told us unless some revolutionary new glitch is discovered, it's simply not possible. Those sentiments were echoed by Oats and Goats, the world record holder for hard mode, who told us, With the knowledge of the game that we have now, I would have to say no, I do not think that sub one hour is possible. But I do believe there will be many new tricks and glitches discovered that open the door for much lower times, but only time will tell if Sub-1 is an actual possibility. I have no doubt that the Dread team put in a number of creative ways to beat the game. This game is still very new and has plenty of maturing to do, so once time has passed, I'm sure we will find even more paths to the end. Mercury Steam have said they keep an eye on the speedrunning community, and Oats and Goats says at least one of them has watched him live on Twitch. He also pointed out the devs made pre-rendered loading screens for every area with every suit, including the standard power suit, which means they suspected someone could beat the game without a single suit upgrade. Following in the steps of Super Metroid, it seems they crafted Metroid Dread as an open invitation to countless unique paths, sequence breaks, and tricks the developers themselves didn't even know were possible. Speedrunners like Bane and Oats and Goats continue to battle it out to become the fastest in the world, but if they'll ever be able to beat a game that took 16 years to make in a single hour, well, only time will tell. Did you know? Metroid was originally called Space Hunter. This term can still be seen in the game's instruction booklet where it refers to bounty hunters as space hunters. According to a developer interview in the Japanese magazine Nintendo Dream, Nintendo wanted to use the term bounty hunter but couldn't rewrite the text in time for the game's release. They later settled on the name Metroid, which came from combining the words Metro, as in a Metro subway, and Android, which is strange considering the game's protagonist, Samus Aran, isn't an android. That said, Samus's identity wasn't fully realized until partway through the game's development. Her gender was decided after developers said, hey, wouldn't it be kind of cool if it turned out that this person inside the suit was a woman? Samus's physical appearance in Super Metroid was based on the actress Kim Basinger. Her second name, Aran, came from soccer player Pele, whose real name was Edison Arantes do Nascimento. Samus was referred to as a he in the instruction booklet, though this may have been a cover-up to ensure the end reveal was shocking. Samus originally had unique animations for walking left and right, rather than having the same animation mirrored for both directions. These unused sprites are actually still in the game's data. Samus's movement also went through some changes. At first, the developers thought she moved too slow on screen. They increased her speed, but this increase made it hard to maneuver through small areas and on small platforms. Thus, the environments were made larger to compensate, resulting in the expansive labyrinths the series is known for. Samus's iconic design, dressed in the round-shouldered Varia suit, didn't debut until Metroid 2 Return of Samus. In the first Metroid, the different suits that Samus equips, the Varia suit and the Power suit, were the same shape but had different colors. The Game Boy's visuals lacked color, so for Metroid 2, these suits were redesigned so players could tell them apart. Also, the name Varia Suit was a mistranslation from Japanese and was meant to be called Barrier Suit, as stated in Metroid's instruction booklet.
In Super Metroid, Samus initially appeared naked when she died. However, the developers gave her clothes to avoid controversy outside of Japan. Samus also spoke as she died, but the voice was removed for sounding too sexual. Super Metroid's title screen was also changed during development. The graphics for this can be pulled from the game's ROM to reveal the original title, Metroid. The Super Metroid boss, Krokemeyer, was planned to appear in Metroid Zero Mission. Not only are the boss's graphics present, but Krokemeyer's behavior is partially programmed into the game as well. A Metroid fan called Trunar68 created a hack for the game that flushes out Krokemeyer's movements to resemble the Super Metroid boss fight. There's also a plethora of Krokemeyer concept art from Metroid Prime 3 Corruption, suggesting Krokemeyer was meant to appear in that game as well. The boss Kraid was set to make an appearance in Metroid Prime. The graphics for Kraid resembled the Super Metroid design, but included metal prosthetics similar to those found on Meta Ridley. As a result, fans dubbed the boss Meta Kraid. There's also concept art for Kraid without metal prosthetics, showing it had multiple stages of development before being dropped completely. There's also an unused ice boss in Metroid Prime. Its color scheme, spikes, and the position of its tusks resemble the Shigoth, so it's possible this creature is somehow related to them. It's also possible that the boss Thardis may have replaced this ice monster. You face Thardis in a cold climate, but some early animations show Thardis as a lava-themed boss. Thardis could have been altered and repurposed in order to fill the void by removing the ice boss. Some of the roars made by the bosses in Super Metroid greatly resemble roars from the Godzilla movies. When Krokemeyer dies, it lets out what seems to be the roar of Titanosaurus. and the same roar seems to be used again when the boss Fantoon is hit. Dragon's cry also resembles the cry of the Godzilla monster, Anguirus. There are many similarities between the Metroid and Alien franchises. These similarities have been acknowledged by Metroid's co-creator, Yoshio Sakamoto. He stated that the first Alien movie influenced the creation of Metroid, and that his team thought the presentation in Alien was a good match for the Metroid world they had already put in place. In addition to basic design influences from the Alien franchise, some events from the first four Metroid games resemble events from the first four Alien movies. Here are just a few examples. After hatching, the first forms of the Alien Xenomorphs and the first forms of the Metroids both latch onto the heads of their victims, and both species have multiple stages of metamorphosis. Both Metroid and Alien have female lead protagonists, both of which narrowly escape explosions and are shown half-clothed at the ending. The boss Ridley also shares his name with Alien movie director Ridley Scott. In the sequel to Alien, Aliens, Ripley travels to the source of the Alien Xenomorphs, the moon LV-426. In Metroid 2, Samus travels to the source of the Metroids, SR-388. Both stories center around the heroines attempting to exterminate the alien threat in their universe. Aliens introduces the Queen Alien, Metroid 2 introduces the Queen Metroid. In the third Metroid game, Super Metroid, the Key Hunters have the ability to spit acid, and in Alien 3, a Xenomorph also spits acid. In the fourth Alien movie, Alien Resurrection, Ripley is cloned and the embryo of an alien queen is extracted from her body. The cloning process unites alien DNA with Ripley's, turning her into a human-alien hybrid. In the fourth Metroid game, Metroid Fusion, Samus becomes infected with a virus, but is later cured with a vaccine. The vaccine uses Samus's cellular sample taken from the remains of the baby Metroid that she came into contact with in Super Metroid, and this vaccine ultimately gives her Metroid-like powers. Wayland yutani Corporation clones Xenomorphs from Ripley's embryo to use as weapons. Similarly, the Galactic Federation uses the baby Metroid's cells to clone a series of Metroids, and both labs end up being destroyed by Ripley and Samus. Xenomorphs don't attack Ripley as she's a human-alien hybrid and they think she's one of them. With the exception of the Omega Metroid, the Metroids don't attack Samus, presumably for the same reasons. 
It's possible that Metroid 2 is going to receive a DX remake, much like Link's Awakening DX. In the April 1998 issue of the German club Nintendo magazine, a full-color image of Metroid 2 was shown. It's not known if the image was representing a game in development or if it was simply a mock-up. A fan remake of Metroid 2, known as Another Metroid 2 Remake, sparked a comment from Retro Studios artist Benjamin Sprout, saying, I've always thought it'd be awesome to remake Metroid 2. A group of us at Retro even discussed doing it as a side project at one point. To our knowledge, the idea never progressed. There are lots of unused test rooms in Metroid Other M. Most are fairly basic and lack detail, but one of them stands out. This room is actually from Ninja Gaiden 2, where you fight the boss Resetsu at the top of a building. The background tower is no longer present in the model, but the structure is mostly intact. There's a room shown in the trailer from Metroid Fusion, where Samus uses a power bomb against zombie scientists. This part of the game was removed, but the room itself is still in the game's code. The crystals from Wario Land 4 can also be found in the game's code. This is because Metroid Fusion was made using Wario Land 4's game engine. In Metroid Fusion, when you unclog the exhaust fans in Sector 1, there's a secret hidden in the blockage. If you look to the top left corner of the rubble, you can see a partly disguised Nintendo GameCube. Did you know there was almost a Metroid movie? The franchise was at its peak of popularity and acclaim after the launch of Metroid Prime in early 2003, and Retro Studios was hard at work making a sequel. Nintendo was developing Zero Mission and Metroid Prime Hunters, and they'd even contracted out a pinball game spin-off. The iron was piping hot, so Nintendo decided to go all out, and decided to make a Metroid movie too. They optioned out film rights to producers Warren Zide and Craig Perry, best known for the Final Destination movies and American Pie. The duo released a basic plot outline in January 2003, which read, The story is set in a once peaceful galaxy, which has its prosperity shattered by a startling discovery. On a routine mapping expedition of a planet, a survey crew discovers a new airborne life form the Metroid. Able to engulf other living beings, feed on their energy, and multiply in great numbers, they prove a terrifying menace. Female bounty hunter Samus Aran is commissioned by the Galactic Federation to eliminate the pests, but she soon discovers that pirates with a stolen Metroid specimen are plotting to breed and build an unstoppable army. Zide and Perry were actively looking for writers, actors, and a director, but their plans ultimately went nowhere, and their rights expired in 2004. That's when the rights got snapped up by John Woo, a much more accomplished producer with greater enthusiasm for the project. Woo's penchant for Mexican standoffs, slow motion, and stylized action scenes known as Gun Fu made him one of Hong Kong's most influential filmmakers, and a huge inspiration for Hollywood movies like The Matrix, as well as anime like Cowboy Bebop. According to Foxhoven, a producer who worked alongside Wu, we believed there was a great opportunity for John Wu to bring his style of action into a Metroid film. Nintendo was quite supportive of the idea, as they were all fans of John's previous films. Nintendo was definitely discouraged by the Super Mario Bros. movie, but felt with John they would be in better hands. When the news broke, Foxhoven announced that they were looking to make Metroid into a big-budget film, and not a quick cash grab. Samus's adventure would be fairly faithful to the games, and see her battling series staples like Mother Brain and the titular Metroids. John Woo was apparently pretty excited, telling The Hollywood Reporter, This type of story has a proven track record of success with film audiences. We're very fortunate that there is such an extensive amount of material to draw upon for the film due to there being so many Metroid games over the years. Early script proposals focused on Samus' origin story, explaining who she was and what she did before she became the bounty hunter we know today. In an IGN interview, Foxhoven explained Samus was going to be exceptionally talented, but also very flawed, and looking for redemption. They wanted Samus to struggle, 
be humbled, and ultimately find it within herself to beat the odds, rather than come out the gate as some overpowered superhero. Wu's team hired several writers to provide guidance, most notably David Greenwald, who had experience writing strong female leads from his time on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. As for who'd play the starring role, it doesn't appear Wu ever nailed down a specific actress, but Retro Studios president Michael Kelbaugh knew just the woman for the job. In late 2004, Electronic Gaming Monthly asked Kelbaugh who should play Samus in the upcoming Wu movie, and he said, we address this question a lot. The sex of Samus is irrelevant in the video games, and we've always liked that because it never played a role in the series. It's more of a surprise than anything else. Demi Moore kind of personifies that. It doesn't matter what's underneath the helmet way of thinking. She has always been my preference to play Samus. Presumably, he'd come to the conclusion after watching A Few Good Men, G.I. Jane, and other Demi Moore movies, where she played roles typically reserved for men, but was also capable of employing traditional feminine charms when a script called for it. In early 2004, John Woo announced the film was planned to hit theaters around Christmas 2005. So by the time summer of 2004 rolled around, rumors were swirling that the movie was on schedule and production had begun. But Nintendo's Yoshio Sakamoto dispelled those rumors in Japanese gaming magazine Nintendo Dream, saying that there hadn't actually been any progress, explaining, There were some misleading reports before E3 that Metroid's production was confirmed. But to be accurate, it's that the company that John Woo works for has gained the rights to negotiate with Nintendo of America to make Metroid into a movie. Metroid's production hasn't officially been decided yet, and there's no release plans for it. And that's the devil in the details. The contract between Nintendo and John Woo, which was never made public, didn't give Woo the authority to make the movie however he wanted. It only gave him rights to make a movie which Nintendo approved of. The biggest impediment was Samus didn't have much of an established backstory to draw from, and a movie adaptation required much more fleshing out of both character and the universe. It seems there just wasn't enough material in the games to draw from, as Woo initially thought. His team spent three years, just in the pre-production stages, trying to build a cohesive world and craft a story that would satisfy the Metroid fanbase and also appeal to the moviegoers who had been meeting Samus for the first time. And more importantly, the story had to gain Nintendo's approval. But according to Foxhoven, things started to go south when we tried to dig into the character a bit more. As you know, any film needs a deeper story arc than what's told in the game, where we learned about the characters and their world. What are they doing when they're not fighting? What is their daily existence? existence and relationships? What are Samus's aspirations, history, and fears? Nintendo appreciated the questions but had never thought about them before, and ultimately didn't have a lot of answers. In the end, they felt uncomfortable with our team being the ones to propose those answers. Boxhoven went on to say they made it as far as treatment, which is the stage between the basic outline and the script's first draft. A treatment's usually between 10 and 40 pages, and details the narrative, setting, characters, themes, and particular scenes in order to secure authorization to move forward and write the full script. But after years of getting to that point, Wu's team realized they just couldn't come up with a satisfactory story that Nintendo would agree to. So, they were forced to abandon the project in 2007. Apparently, Nintendo wanted to tell Samus' story all on their own, so they started development on Metroid Other M later that same year. But when Other M released in 2010, the Metroid fanbase largely rejected that story. A few weeks later, GamesRadar asked Other M's producer and director, Yoshio Sakamoto, if there was any hope a Metroid 
movie could still get made someday. He told them, specifically talking about storytelling of Other M and the visual quality of computer graphics, I think we have used quite luxurious resources to create these movie sequences, and I think these scenes are worthy of the movie label. However, if you ask me if I want Samus's story to be told in cinemas, I really don't think so. However, if Mr. Ryuji Kitaura, the director of the CG cutscenes in Other M, wants to make a Metroid movie, and if the concept and methodologies he presents are agreeable with me, then I might be okay with the idea. But only if it's made by him. Fans haven't exactly been clamoring for Nintendo to make a full-length movie in the style of Other M, but there have been some interesting ideas from third parties in the decade since. Like in 2017, when the producer of the Netflix Castlevania series Adi Shenkar said he'd like to make a quote-unquote Dark Metroid series, in the same anime style as Castlevania. Unfortunately though, Sakamoto publicly expressed a lack of enthusiasm for Shenkar's proposal. In 2018, the director of the upcoming Metal Gear movie, Jordan Vote Roberts told IGN he wanted to make a Metroid film in an isolationist style, saying, it legitimately would be Samus alone. It would be a little bit of her talking to herself. As soon as they introduce other talking characters in those games, to me, it loses everything. You put her alone, and it's almost got more to do with the silence of a movie, like Drive, like the quietness, and having it be a real intense mood piece, but mixed with sci-fi. But Nintendo will never let me. It's too crazy. Apparently, it wasn't too crazy though, because Metroid Prime's senior designer, Mike Wicken, publicly supported the idea, even if Nintendo proper never acknowledged it. A few months later, Captain Marvel actress Brie Larson dressed as Zero Suit Samus for Halloween, and repeatedly expressed a desire to play Samus on the silver screen. And the following year, Metroid manga writer Izuki Kouji said he also supported a live-action film based on the series.